Well, today is the day we have been waiting for, and uh, we're going to start the book of Proverbs today. Today will be basically an introduction of that great book. Um, I, I think my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Proverbs. It's the book that I probably spent more time in than any other book of the Bible, just because I, I understood its relevance to everything that, that I needed. You know, and I've told you this many, many times, if there's any one book that I could get into my brain that I would have total recall on, it would be the book of, of, uh, of Proverbs. And today I want to give you an introduction uh, by showing you a number of things that I think you want to remember when we begin this book. Uh, the way I uh, put books of the Bible together, I, I simply, you know, find out all of the basic fundamental stuff. I'm going to make it, Bubba. Thanks for showing up today. We're good to have you here. <laughs> I like to get all the information I can about uh, a book of the Bible. Uh, it helps me, uh, and that's just the way I've done it. So anytime I teach you a book of the Bible, I always give you uh, an amount of material or the background because I think it helps when you begin to get into that book. And, uh, you know, in your Bible, almost in the center of your New Old Testament, you have what is commonly called the five wisdom books. And uh, they're all placed together in one section in your Bible. In fact, they make up a section of your Bible. In the order in your Bible, the first one you have is the book of Job. Now, Job was written by a guy by the name of Elihu, uh, and uh, Job is a great book. Then you have the book of Psalms. That'll be the next book. Psalm, David writes most of the book of Psalms, but then several other authors come in to be uh, in the play in it. Solomon writes some of them. Uh, Asaph, who was David's chief musician. Uh, Moses writes some. Ethan, and then you got some guys by the name of the sons of Korah. They write some of them. But when it comes to the next three books, and that'll be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, those are all written by Solomon. And, uh, and, in my mind, calling these books the wisdom books is an understatement. For in my mind and the way I look at it and what I've come through over the years, these five books will detail every aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to you. Uh, these five books are the key. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ Jesus. And that's why God took all of that and he put it in five books that are right in the middle of that Old Testament and he calls them the wisdom books. And these five books, when you get them down, will give you uh, what the Bible calls in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 as the fullness of God. Now the fullness of God is getting all of God that there is to get. All the knowledge about, all the knowledge, all of God's knowledge, all of God's wisdom, all of God's character... And when I talk about getting the knowledge of God, I'm not talking about getting knowledge about God or the wisdom about God. The fullness of God is you and I getting the exact same knowledge and wisdom that God has that He operates by that we begin to operate by in our lives. Now, let me give you just a short overview of these, of these books. Before we do that, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, Thank you today for those that have come. We pray your blessings upon us now, and we love you. Thank you for all that you do, and we ask you, Father, to take today and to give us, Lord, uh, what we need. Help these folks who want to learn the Bible to grow and to keep growing and learning and help me to be a better teacher, a better preacher, a better pastor, uh, to meet their needs every day. And, and Lord, we just thank you for what you've given us here uh, with the people who love you, love the book, and love each other. 
And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now you take the book of Job. That'll be our first wisdom book. The book of Job deals with the suffering of God. Most Christians think that the real depth of the crucifixion is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because that's all they ever read. Truth of the matter is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just give you an overall view of what took place in the, at the crucifixion of Christ. If you really want to understand what Christ endured on the cross, you've got to go to the book of Job. The book of Job in Job chapter 30, Job chapter 16, takes you to the inside of the cross. In fact, you can line it up almost point by point in Job chapter 30 with the New Testament principles. And what it does, it shows you exactly, I mean exactly, what Christ is feeling and experiencing on the cross. Job shows us the sufferings of Christ. Now, the book of Psalms, our second one, uh, will show you the heart of God. I, I, what you hear me talk about getting God's heart. I preached a message on it a couple of weeks ago or months ago, whatever it was, and, and uh, you, 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 uh, you hear me talking about getting God's heart, getting God's heart. God's heart is the book of Psalms. And you'll find that the theme of the book of Psalms is truth because God's heart is truth. Psalms 119, 160, 176 verses. And every one of them will talk about another way to love God, his, God's Word. Every one of them have something to do with the Word of God. That's why uh, most people are drawn to Psalms and, uh, than any other book in the Bible. When you need to get close to God, when you're going through some trial in your life, if you know anything about the Bible at all, you're going to make your way to the book of Psalms. That's the heart of God. Then the next three books... And you hear me talk about the mind of God uh, all the time. The Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We talk a lot about the mind of God. And I tell you over and over again that the mind of Christ, the mind of God is the Word of God. And these last three books show you God's mind in three different aspects according to the Trinity. Most people understand that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But what most people don't understand, that even though they're all the same, yet they're separate, but they're all the same God, and He manifests Himself in three different forms, most people don't understand that each one of those forms has a particular function in the Bible, in history, and in your life. God the Father has one particular function. The Lord Jesus Christ has another particular function. And the Spirit of God has another particular function. They each have their own mind by which they're going to accomplish something. And so when you get to these last three books, each, each will show you uh, the complete function of, of, of what's going on. Now you take the book of Ecclesiastes. That'll show you the mind of the Spirit. You know, in the book of John chapter 16, which is the definitive chapter on the Holy Spirit of God in the New Testament, it shows you seven things that the Holy Spirit of God wants to accomplish in your life, or what He does. It shows you what His function is. And the book of Ecclesiastes shows you the mind of the Spirit. The book of Ecclesiastes deals with the movement of the Holy Spirit of God down through history. When you get into Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you're told that the Holy Spirit of God moves into a circuit or a pattern. We've talked a lot about patterns uh, over the last year. And, which, and you can follow that pattern throughout history. If you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes and know, understand how the Holy Spirit of God works, you will know exactly where he's at today. 
You can trace him down through the Middle East. You can trace him down through Europe, down through history, and you can trace him through and across America uh, as America goes into her final demise. The book of Ecclesiastes shows us the cycle of history. And all history is based on the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. In the Bible, it'll be east to west. Horace Mann, uh, Horace Greeley, Horace Greeley uh, coined a phrase that uh, back in the 1800s that uh, I'm sure he didn't know it was in the Bible, but he said, go west, young man. And you're going to find that in the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God moves through a circuit, through a pattern that moves east to west down through history. And uh, it's an incredible study to take under itself. But the book of Ecclesiastes shows you the cycle of history. It shows you uh, what the movement of the Holy Spirit of God is. And it also shows you the repetitiveness of history. It shows you that even though the Holy Spirit of God goes through a cycle, history always repeats itself. Heard me say it many, many times. The only thing man never learns from history is the fact that man never learns anything from history. It repeats itself. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, there's no new thing under the sun because it all gets repeated. Now you take the Song of Solomon book. That's a great book. That'll be the mind of Christ. You see, Song of Solomon shows you two great things. Now, this is my own personal opinion, what I'm about to say, and I know a lot of people might disagree with what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyhow. The bottom line is this. From my experience in life and what I know a little bit I know about the Bible, I want to tell you something. You will never have the relationship with Christ that you want to have till you understand fundamentally the book of Song of Solomon. The book of Song of Solomon is a book that Christ wrote to you. It's a book that shows you, first of all, what Christ thinks of you. We get all messed up today. We think that, that Jesus is worried about everything that's going on in the world. And uh, it happens because we get sucked into this, this religious world today that has nothing to do with God or the Bible. So we get the idea that God cares about who wins the World Series. We get the idea that God cares about who wins the Super Bowl. We get, you see a guy make a touchdown. He goes down and points to Christ like Christ helped him get across the goal line. Christ don't care nothing about that. When you understand the book of Song of Solomon, you realize that Christ cares about one thing. It's you if you're saved today. All he wants is your undivided attention. He doesn't sit up in heaven and look down and say, put bets on the Super Bowl or what's going on over here. He sits up there in heaven and looks at you, Song of Solomon chapter 2. He looks through the lattice. He looks through down there, and all he cares about is you. He thinks about you 24-7. He can't wait to be with you. He can't wait for the rapture of the church. All he thinks about is you. Tells you that in that book. It also tells you, that all we ought to be thinking about is him. It's a great book. It's a great book. Now that you can see I'm ruining your breakfast, so I'll move right on here to the next book. This is why it's called Song of Songs. You realize that the Bible says that he wrote a thousand and five songs, but there's only one song of songs. You know what that tells me? That tells me at any 1,005 Christian, there's only one that's going to be what he wants them to be. That's the odds from the Song of Solomon, the mind of Christ. Then the book we're coming to today, the book of Proverbs, where Ecclesiastes will be the mind of the Spirit, Song of Solomon will be the mind of Christ, the book of Proverbs will be the mind of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, uh, your, uh, either are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, the book of Proverbs is about making choices. God's 
God's ways and God's thoughts are not my ways and my thoughts. The book of Proverbs lays out for me the thoughts and ways of God on the issues of life on planet earth. It tells me in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 that all the issues of life that I have to deal with, they start in my heart. And from my heart come the issues of life that I have to face. And issues of life demand decisions. And you and I and everything in our life will make choices. We'll make choices about everything. And it's those choices, good or bad, that'll, that'll mark us for the rest of our lives in some cases of what we do with God and what we don't do with God. But the book of Proverbs will deal with the issues and show us exactly what God's opinion is on everything in life. I, I've told you before, the job of every Christian, the job of every Christian is to find out what God's opinion is on everything on planet Earth and then scrap your own personal opinion and make that opinion God's opinion, your opinion. That's what it is. That's what growth is. That's what spiritual growth is. That's what becoming more like Christ is. Now, the book of Proverbs is written by the wisest man that ever lived, and his name was Solomon. And, uh, and uh, you're going to find that uh, when, you, when you go down through history uh, today, you're going to find two aspects to history. You're going to find the history that's recorded for you in the Bible, that is the true history, and you're going to find uh, the history that is displayed out in the world today through the public education system, which is basically a Gentile history. If you went to college or you went to, if you went to high school uh, or grade school and whenever you took a world history course or an ancient history course or whatever, you will never be told that there was a time in history where the nation of Israel was the greatest nation on the face of the planet. You will never be told that there was a time when every nation on the face of this planet came to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon and see the glory of God in the temple that he built. You'll hear a lot about the Egyptians and those stupid pyramids they built. You'll hear a lot about the Sphinx. You'll hear a lot about the Babylonians. You'll hear a lot about the Carthaginians. You'll hear a lot about the Romans. You'll hear a lot about the, uh, the Hittites and all of these groups. But when it comes to the group, which was God's group, which God basically has built, and I'll show you in a minute, God has basically built all history around. You get nothing. And that's because the world wants to suppress, the devil wants to suppress the fact that the greatest period on this planet was when Solomon reigned, and the Bible says that every nation on this planet came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And you know what the wisdom of Solomon was? Hear what God's Word says. And boy, it was a, it, it was a great time. But that's all been lost to history. And history and how Israel has lost its place uh, with time uh, in the times of the Gentiles. And I've told you before, the times of the Gentiles now are when the Gentiles come in, they take over the world, and they begin to rewrite history. And that's why when you take a history course, you'll never hear about the nation of Israel. Now, there are different aspects to our Christian life and our walk and our fellowship with God. And I believe that everything in our lives will go back to these five wisdom books. You want to understand the price that was paid on Calvary's cross? Then you get into the book of Job. You want to understand the world system? You get into the book of Ecclesiastes. You want to know how to walk with God and fellowship with God? You get into the book of Psalms. You want to have a personal relationship with Christ that it will be unlike anything in your life? Get into the Song of Sodom. But when it comes to you and me making the choices of life, when it comes to you and me looking at a circumstance and a situation that we have to decide what we're going to do, it comes to the book of Proverbs. 
Proverbs gives you the right take, God's opinion on every issue of life in which we should conduct ourselves. And you'll see it as we begin to go through it here in the following weeks. What I'm saying is this. There are thousands of places that you can go in the Bible that we can see good examples and bad examples that we can take good advice from to either embrace or stay away from. But what I'm telling you this, and this is what I personally believe, I believe that all of the principles, all of the examples, all of the stories originate from the principles in Proverbs because Proverbs is God's mind. Proverbs is God's opinion on everything on planet Earth and the issues of life. And yet I I marvel at this. You know, my personal thoughts on the Word of God is, is, is probably unique, in, 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 to say the least. Uh, but I, I, take, I take the things of God very personally. And I remember years ago, we're going to jump around a little bit this morning so you get a little practice with your Bible, but turn over to John chapter 21. I want to show you one thing that I can actually put my finger on that changed my whole life when it came to understanding and how I looked at the Bible. And I know that Christians look at the Bible differently. You've got some Christians who look at the Bible in a blasé way that, yeah, it's a great book, but I don't have time for it. You've got some who dibble-dabble in it, and they, they read it till they find something they don't like, and they don't read it anymore. You've got some who, who try to get in it, but they never get a real system in studying the Bible, so they get discouraged and quit. I mean, you got, and then you've got people who just really love the Bible. I understand that. And, and, and when I, years ago, when I was really trying to get into the Bible, I think this one principle changed my whole viewpoint so much about the Bible, and it altered everything in my life about how I viewed it, the Bible at that point. It's found in John chapter 21, in verse 25, which is the last verse in that chapter. And here's what it said. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, the things that he did, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now, that's a pretty incredible verse. That verse says that if you didn't get everything that Jesus said and everything he did, the Bible says that, that if everything that he said and obviously everything that he did had been written down, that the world itself would not contain the book. Now, when I saw that, when I understood that, when I grasped that concept, the Bible took on a whole different place in my life because now I realize that out of everything that he said, of all the events that he did, he handpicked what he wanted me to have. He chose for me out of everything that he did. He handpicked to me and put it in a book and said, Bob, out of everything I did and everything I said, here's what I want you to have. Now, once I understood that, how do I ever look at the Bible again just as a book? How do I ever just pick up that book up and say, oh, it's the Word of God? Once I knew that he handpicked everything in it for me personally... And I realized that he wrote that book and he could have put anything in it he wanted. He chose to give me exactly what he wanted me to have. That put some bear of responsibility on my part if I was going to have a relationship with God to appreciate that. Now I'll show you something else. Now turn back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 and 32. And now we'll see the same thing about Proverbs. First Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 32. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceedingly much, 
and largest of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, here's the verse I was talking about when I was making a reference to Israel in the world. Verse 30, And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the men, than Ethan, the Ezrite, and Hermon, uh, and uh, Shalcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all nations round about. You'll never get that in history. You'll never get that in secular education. You probably won't even get it in Christian education. But it is true. Now here's what I want you to see, verse 32. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and the songs were 1,005. He gave us total of 3,000 proverbs, but you don't have them all. Just as the Bible says that the world wouldn't contain all of the things that Jesus said and did, so he handpicked what he wanted you to have when it came down to the book of Proverbs. He had 3,000 of them, but there again, he handpicked exactly what he wanted me and you to have. He looked at my life and what I would need. He looked in your life and what you would need. He looked at the circumstances that we as human beings would, would face. He looked at the issues of life that we'd have to go through, the trials, the struggles, the choices we'd have to make. And you know what he did? Out of 3,000, he handpicked exactly what I would need to get through life. And people look at that, God's people look at that, and don't even think twice about it. That's quite a book you got. book of Proverbs is an incredible book. God gave you exactly what you want. The book of Proverbs contains God's viewpoint on everything in life. It's the book of making good choices. I told you that it's the handbook of leadership. It is because a leader must make good choices. Now, with all that in mind, I want to show you something else. The book of Proverbs is written about two men. And everybody in life is going to fall into one of these categories. Uh, You're never going to meet anybody in life at any time, uh, saved or lost, that doesn't fall into one of these two categories, and you already know what they are. The book of Proverbs is about a wise man, and it's about a foolish man. In fact, the book of Proverbs itself, the name Proverbs means to make a similitude or a comparison. It means to compare side by side. And what Proverbs does, one of the main things it does, It defines, first of all, and we'll get into this in a couple of weeks, it defines what a wise man is, and it defines what a fool is. Now, it defines what a wise man is so you can be wise, but it also defines what a fool is so you can stay away from him, that you can stay wise. And, of course, it's about a wise man and a foolish man. Now, let me show you in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Let me show you the New Testament illustration of what the book of Proverbs does uh, in a concept of a wise man and a foolish man. I know some of you will have fingers cramped by the end of the service today, but it'll be all right. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and we'll read down through verse 27. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, the word of God, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, there it is, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was formed upon a rock. All right? The wise man builds his house upon a rock. And when we see a storm come, that'll represent the storms of life. 
When the wind beats on your house, when the, when the sun comes up, when, the, when, the, when all of the rain comes down and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat upon this guy's house, it never faltered. You know why? Because the house of a wise man is built on a rock. Now, let's look at the alternative. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, verse 26, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man. There's our counterpart found in the book of Proverbs, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now we have a wise man and a foolish man. And with a wise man, defined in the book of Proverbs, build his house upon a rock. Now, what is that rock? That rock is the things of God, the doctrines of God. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, and that rock was Christ. He's the rock that you build your, your house on. What know you're not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And it's talking about your body first and foremost. You need to build your body upon a rock. A rock that will withstand the test of this old world when the wind comes and the floods come and the rain comes. And when you don't do that, and as a foolish man, and this is it's so life is so simple. People all the time who claim to be saved, they claim to be Christian, they claim to go to church, and the first time some catastrophe comes into their life. They fall apart. They break up. They, they have all kinds of issues where they just cannot stand through any adversity. And we scratch our heads many times and wonder why. There's the answer right there. Because they've never built their house. Their personal relationship with Christ is not based on the rock of God. It's based on the sands of this world. And that's the problem. The rock with which this house was built is Bible doctrine. Doctrine starts with Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, another great verse that I've given you before. It talks about wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewned out her seven pillars. Now, that's a great verse that takes it a little bit farther. It's found in the book of Proverbs. It talks about wisdom building its house on seven pillars that are hewn. Hewn means to chisel, to cut. And what we've got here, the Bible itself, the Bible itself is built on seven pillars. The Bible just isn't a rock. That's Christ. But within that rock, Christ, God has chiseled out seven pillars that support that book. When you want to know the Bible, understand the Bible, figure out the Bible, the first thing you realize is that Bible is built on seven pillars. And those seven pillars are taught throughout the Scriptures, and you show me a guy who doesn't understand them, I'll show you a guy who doesn't understand the Bible. Now, the house here is, personally, number one, your body. It's also the house of Israel, historically. And the house of Israel is a picture of the wise man and the foolish man all the way through the Bible. Uh, I mean, when you look at this thing in a doctrinal application, the wise man and the foolish man is Israel. When you look at it in inspirational, it's me and you. But Israel does the exact same thing. She's faced with decisions just like you are. And she had the wisest man that ever lived as her king who wrote these things to her. And she turned her back on him, and she went the way of the world. And we know what happened to her. When the enemies finally came, Shennacherib from the north and Babylon from the south, when the winds and the floods and the waters came, because she had chosen, chosen, chosen to build the house of Israel on sand, she got taken into captivity. 
Now, inspirationally, that house is more than just your body. It's your house that you live in with your family. And you make choices in your life if you're going to build your house on a rock or you're going to build your house on the sand. There's no perfect family, just like there's no perfect church, just like there's no perfect anything in life. And the reason why God gives us the principles of the Word of God is because we live in an imperfect world. And, you know, people say, well, you know what, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this church, I don't like this person, I don't like that person. There's nobody, nothing in life that is perfect. The reason why God gave you a perfect set of standards is to get you around the imperfections in this world. What's the matter with you? But you choose not to take the standard and use it when a problem comes up, when you have to make a choice, when you have to make a decision. I've seen parents all my life that have went to church all their life, but they built their home on the sand. And when that evil day comes, like I talk to your kids at camp, and your kids are faced with those decisions, and when the rains came and the floods came and the problems came, because you were building your house on everything else except what it was supposed to be. Boy, that's an understatement when it says, and great was the fall of it. That's an understatement when it comes to families. Your family should be built on seven pillars. I don't even know if you know it or not. Just like the Bible's built on seven pillars, your family, you as a husband and wife, need to hewn, chisel out of that rock of God seven pillars that you establish your family on. It's just that simple. It needs to be, it needs to be chiseled out on truth. And when you chisel out on truth, the next concept you chisel out in your family is discipline. You got to have discipline, but that won't work by itself. So you chisel some more, and then you get the pillar of love. That's great, but that won't work all by itself. So then you keep on chiseling, and you get the pillar of long suffering. Now those are all good, but those things without the rest of the pillars won't make it work either. The next thing you have to chisel out once you've got truth and discipline and love and long suffering. Now you got to chisel out accountability. The next one you got to chisel out is responsibility. And then the last one you chisel out of it is grace, the ability to use it all. Your house, your family should be built on seven pillars, hewn out of the rock of God. You see, it all starts with Proverbs. Proverbs is the handbook of leadership. Then the next thing the book of Proverbs does, it takes you from the natural into the supernatural. You hear me talk about it all the time. The job of every Christian, not many make it, but the job of every Christian is to transform yourself out of the natural into the supernatural. Get out of the lifestyle of everything around you being effect, affecting you to get to the place where you, you see it from God's standpoint. And uh, I want you to turn again to the book of Ephesians. I want to show you this. Ephesians chapter 3, as a matter of fact. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, here's what it says. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Now there it is again. Verse 19 says that we're to be, we need to be filled with the fullness of God. Let me explain this thing to you. We live in a physical world. The Bible's a 
is a supernatural book, but you hold it in your hands in a physical form. I know the Bible is the mind of Christ, but God's majesty is the fact that he gave us a, a, a supernatural book that represents his mind in a, in a book that you can hold. That in itself is, is quite incredible. We could spend the next thousand years talking about that. Now, uh, but, but in, our, in our world that we live in, the physical world, we have th- three dimensions. We have three dimensions. We have height, we have breadth, that's the width of something, and then we have length. And everything in our life, everything in our life is based on those three dimensions. Now, when you watch your paranormal movies on TV, you know, and your ghost movies where they try to, these goofy guys go in with all these heat sensors, you know, and try to find ghosts and sprinkle talcum powder on the floor to pick up their footprints and all that stuff, you know. And the demons just play with them and have a lot of fun, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, That's called the fourth dimension. Paranormal, spiritual world, you know, is the fourth dimension. And we see so much of that as phony that the average Christian just kind of blows that off. But I got some news for you. The fourth dimension... The fourth dimension is a real Bible teaching in the Bible. There is a fourth dimension. And the concept of a fourth dimension is a Bible truth. The problem is that it's completely unknown to most of Christians because they never get there. Let me tell you something. Three-dimensional Christians are hard to find. Really. I'm going to show you in a minute. Three-dimensional Christians are hard to find. Fourth-dimensional Christians are like trying to find a brontosaurus in, in New York Central Park, man, is just not too many of them out there. And when I talk about leaving uh, this, this world uh, in a natural sense and getting into a supernatural life, stepping out of the natural, which is the third dimension, and living in the supernatural, now I'm talking about the fourth dimension. Now look at verse 18 here. I'll show you what this is. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God. Now, let's talk about the three dimensions for just a second. Now, most Christians understand God in a first, second, or third dimensional understanding of God because that's the physical thing. Let me show you how these things line up. Uh, the physical world we live in is the, the three, third dimension, three dimensions. The first thing he says is the breath of God, the, the breath of God. That's, that's how wide God is. Now, when we look at that and put that into a biblical context, that'll be the length of God's mercy and love. We talk about God took my sins and part them far as the east is from the west. See, that's God's mercy. That's God's love. And uh, when you understand that, you, just, you know, you ask your little kids. I ask my grandkids all the time, especially little Macy. The other ones are too smart now. They won't fall for it, but Macy does. And I said, Macy, how much do you love Grandpa? Show me. And she said, Grandpa, I love you that much. You see, that's a width. Now, isn't it strange that when Christ died on the cross that the official form of crucifixion was Roman crucifixion? And when he died on that cross, he's basically illustrating to you by the nails in his hands, outstretched hands on that cross, how much he loved you. See, that's, God's, that's, the, that's the breath of God's mercy. That's the breath of God's love. You see, we can understand that. I can talk to you about Christ dying on a cross and how much he loved you. And even though we can't get to it maybe in all the details in a third dimensional aspect of the physical life, who here can understand how much God loved you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If I talk about the crucifixion and him dying on a cross, you can grab that. See, you can get that. That's in our physical world. Then the second thing he talks about is the length of God. That's the longevity of God. That's God down through history. Daniel chapter 7 calls God the Ancient of Days. It means he's been around for a while. 
And when God wanted to illustrate himself to you and show you where he's at, because history can be a long entailed thing, he's told you in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28, to remove not the ancient landmarks which the fathers have set. Then he told you again in Proverbs chapter 23 to remove not the old landmarks and enter into the fields of the fatherless. You know what the fields of the fatherless are? You know what a fatherless child is? It's some kid who walks around all life wondering who his father is. You know what most Christians do all their life? They wander around their Christian life wondering who God really is. They never get there. And the fields of the fatherless is a picture of what happens to any nation, any person, anybody who loses sight of God and longevity of God down through history, and then they enter into the fields of the Father. You know what Gentile history is? Gentile history is nothing more than one nation coming up, taking over another nation, and then they, they're on top for a while, and then they get taken over by somebody else. It's just one nation rising up to taking over another nation. There's no point to it. There's no reason to it. There's no rhyme to it. If you'd go back and try to show me the point between the Egyptian civilization coming up through history to where we're at now, there would be no point to it other than the big guy wins because there's no point to it. That's the fields of the fatherless. That's walking through the annals of history without even understanding what's really going on. You put God into the equation. You put the Bible into the equation. You put the two landmarks in there. The Old Testament nation of Israel is the landmark of the ancients, and the church in the New Testament is the landmark for the New Testament. You put those two landmarks in, and you make your survey of history off of those two points. Ever had your property surveyed? You want to put a fence down and you don't want to get sued by putting it on your neighbor's property? Or you want to do something and you don't know where your property line is? You call a surveyor. No, a surveyor is not the smartest guy in the world. He just comes out and says, yeah, that's your property. <laughs> He's got a, something that he works off of and he finds a landmark. We don't see him, but in our yard at some point back in the 1800s or whenever, they put little discs down in the ground which they, uh, they, it tells where the boundary line is. And he gets his little surveying thing out, and he goes off. They found the boundary line, and then he can tell you exactly where your property is and where your property are. If you don't have that landmark to find to start that, that, that process, well, you'll be building fences on everybody's yard. That's what happens with the history when we don't have the Bible. The Bible gives us in the longevity of God, trying to figure God out down through history. It gives us the landmarks that shows us we always know where we're at when it comes to God and what God is doing. I showed you New Year's Eve when we went through that whole Bible, and I showed you how God basically has carved in eternity a parenthesis, which is called time. All the longevity of God. You see, that's, that's something that we can grasp. We can understand that. What I just told you, most of you out there who are reasonable intelligence, say, yeah, I get that. I understand that. I get that. Those are the Third-dimensional thing. That's the physical world. We can understand God to a, a great degree in that physical standpoint. The third one is the height, the height of God. Now, that'll be our faith in God and our trust in God. I had a friend of mine years ago that was a preacher, and he, he uh, and his wife had a, a bunch of kids. And, they, and I love when people do this. Uh, they, uh, they, they named all their kids after Bible characters. Uh, my wife and I did the same thing. <laughs> and I asked him, and he had all boys. And he suddenly had a, he suddenly had a, uh, he suddenly, Ruth, you're going to love this. He suddenly had one girl and he named her Faith. 
And I, I think Faith is a great name for a girl. And I asked him, I said, you know, I said, he had all these boys, and he was very biblical about everything he did. I really appreciated him. He, he always tried to do, he was always thinking of doing anything right, and I, I can't, I love him for it. And I asked him, I said, now you had all these boys, and I said, and you had a girl, and you named her Faith. And he's always got some, he always had some biblical, biblical principle behind everything he did. And I said, why did you choose to name that little girl Faith? And he said, well, my wife and I decided that, you know, we got all these kids and sometimes things get rough for us and we don't always have everything we need and we have to take care of all the kids that God gave us. So we decided to name this little girl Faith that when, when the devil comes to the door or trouble comes to the door, we just send Faith to answer the door. You know what, folks? You want to talk about how high God is, who sees over every problem you and I have? Who, who, who stands above and sees the outcome and we don't? You see, the, the height of God is your ability when push comes to shove and you're afraid or fear comes to your door, faith answers the door. You realize that God has saved you. God has brought you to this place in life. He's not going to let you down now. You got to have faith and trust in God that he's bigger than every problem you got to face. No matter what you go through, no matter what befalls you, no matter what happens. And you can have the worst day of your life. I mean, you can wake up in the morning and you go out and your car won't start. And you take it to the garage and it's got to have a new motor. Then you got to finally get to work and the boss is mad because of the fact you were late, so he lays you off. And then you go home and you find out that while you were gone, you know, your, 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 your sink stopped up, your dishwasher broke, and your life is just saying, what more can happen? And so you finally, finally, finally go out and say, I got to get away from all of this. Everything is coming down in my life. Everything is bothering me. Everything is getting to me. And you go say, I know, I'm going to go to my favorite ice cream place, and I'm just going to get away, and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to enjoy it. And you walk in, and the first thing that hits you is the special of the day. Rocky Road. <laughs> God is bigger than those things. The Bible talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that God is like an eagle. He soars high above the world. You know, I read one time that an eagle, what well, is he soaring up there, that a half a mile away he can see some little road moving that he goes down and swoops on. He's got incredible eyesight. He's got the height on everybody on planet Earth. He's got the eyesight that sees what nobody else can see. And that's why God chose an eagle to represent himself, because he soars higher than all of our problems. And he sees the minute detail that we can't see. David understood the great concept when he, he, he wrote Psalms 18 verse 2 and he called God his high tower. Psalm 61 verse 3, David called him his strong tower. And in Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse 4, it just got right down to it and it called the tower of David. Why a tower? Because they recognized that God could see over the problems. Simply God in this life is bigger than any of the problems that we have. Gee, man can grasp that. We can get that. You're all taking notes. You got it. You were smiling and laughing. You got the little thing about faith answering the door. You got the thing about Rocky Road. You got it. You, you can grasp those things. But, oh, there's a fourth one. 
This one is not physical, my dear friend, but it's spiritual. And it deals with the eternal mind of God that the book of Proverbs that we're about to study represents. This is what, as they say in the world, separates the men from the boys. Or we've got the three physical things that make the three dimensions. We do. But the fourth one there found in that great passage is the depth of God. And the depth of God is the fourth dimension. The depth of God is God's eternal mind. This is why the Bible is called the true riches in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. This is why the Bible is called the unsearchable riches in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. This is why you find in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, where the Bible says the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, those deep things. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You see, the Bible is a supernatural book. And because it's a supernatural book that represents God's eternal mind, it's a book that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, can discern our thoughts and intents. I, years ago, we used to go street preaching and I, when I was young. And, and one of the tricks we used to do was we used to go down in Canton uh, on the square on a Saturday, and it was always kind of busy. And uh, we want to get a crowd, you know. And so we'd come up with all kinds of goofy ways. I wouldn't suggest you do this today. But one of the guys, was a, was a, he was, a, he was a, just a great guy. And he, he got a big Mexican sombrero hat. And he, he, he put it down in a circle, and he put his Bible underneath of it. And then people are walking by looking at it, and he was looking at it like that, and we're all here just cracking up, man. And then he starts his monologue. He says, the people walk by, sir, stand back, it's alive. It's alive, sir. Ma'am, don't get close to that, it's alive. They're thinking he had a snake under there, you know. And pretty soon people are getting a crowd around. And he's saying, it's alive, stay away, it's alive, man. You don't want to get close to that, it's alive. Ma'am, keep your kids back, it's alive. And about that time, a police officer came up. And a police officer, he had now about 30, 40 people there. And we're over here just cracking up. We know what's going to happen. And so the police officer comes up, you know, and he's concerned. He thinks he's got a cobra in there or something, you know. And he says, uh, what's going on here? What's going on? And he says, sir, Mr. Police Officer, you stay back. It's alive. It's alive. And the guy says, what's alive? And he picked up the hat. He said, the word of God. <laughs> then he had a crowd. He street preached for about 15 minutes. See? This book's alive. This book's the eternal book of God's mind. It's alive. This book... When, I tell you all the time, it's the only book in the world. When you start reading it, it starts reading you. And the Bible says it discerns the thoughts and the intents of your heart. It looks right down and asks the very motive why you're reading this. I mean, this book is a lie because it's the eternal mind of God. And the secret things, the secret things that are in it, the deep things. You know what David said? He said in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 22, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times, the seasons. He removeth kings. He setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise. And now to them that are understanding, he hath revealed the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. God reveals the secret things, the deep things. That's the depth. Now, this is the answer why it explains it that so many of God's people never really have a relationship with God and His Word and just play at it. You see, the book of Proverbs represents the depth of God. It's His mind. It doesn't give you the knowledge about God, but it rather gives you the exact knowledge of God, what He knows about all things, you can know about all things about human nature, how it works, the patterns of human nature, about history and how it unfolds, the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation and where you fit into it, 
How about current events with what's going on in the world today and how, how they translate from what they appear to be to what they really are? He'll show you the deep things of why people have the issues that they have. The patterns of everything in life starts in Proverbs. He'll show you about the future. Isaiah 42, 9, one of my favorite passages. It says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and now things, new things do I declare. But before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That's the fourth dimension. That's you getting into that book to such a degree that God takes you where he takes nobody else. You know, you see it in a lot of guys preaching. You really do. I mean, uh, uh, most preaching uh, is one-dimensional. Let's be honest. You, uh, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, if you like this guy, I don't mean to say anything negative about him. I'm not being anybody. I like to listen to him. I think he's got some good points. Joe Olstein is one-dimensional. It's all feel good, feel good, feel good, feel good, feel good, feel good. Now, I like a lot of things that he says, but he's one-dimensional. I've seen, I've seen young guys preach that most young guys preaching are one-dimensional. They have one little thought that they struggle getting across. I've heard some of them preach down at the mission that I wasn't sure where they were because I knew they wasn't sure where they were. But, but you find guys that preach usually in a one and a two, and, and a good preacher will be in three dimensions. You find a preacher that preaches in the fourth dimension, and you can tell in a moment. You know why? Because listening to a sermon is like drinking out of a fire hose. And one hour sermon, you get 40 sermons. The depth to it. It goes down someplace. It isn't just surface stuff. Oh, we love God. We love everybody. <laughs> Take up the offer. That's more than that. The depth goes down deep. You can see where the roots are. You can see that what he's giving you is springing up from something way down below the surface. You see preachers like that. 3D movies are coming back now. I went to the first 3D movie that was ever out. 1955. Long before most of you were born. <laughs> and it was the creature from the Black Lagoon. I was five years old. I was scared to death. <laughs> My mom, when we came out of the theater, thought that I had some kind of disease because, uh, and, and she said that people like that, you know, usually means you have leukemia. No, I'm really scared. I'm five years old. My mom just says, because I had these absolutely red, I mean, red, broken, blisters, blood vessels under my eyes. And it wasn't anything I had leukemia. I was holding my eyes shut so much I was squeezing the fire out of them. But, uh, you know, that's the first thing to move You wear those, I guess you still wear glasses, but you wear those 3D glasses where it, it takes you from, uh, uh, most all movies are just two-dimensional, see? But when you put those special glasses on, you get the third dimension. Now, before when the birds are just flying, you know, it doesn't look like they're going anywhere. Now I thought they were in my hair. When this creature comes out of that thing, now he's coming for me. A little guy five years old. Not only did my mom not care, she's now going to throw me off because I got leukemia. Let the guy get me. Okay? I mean, I'm looking at this thing, and I'm scared to death. These gla- I took my glasses off, man, and then, ha, ah, it's better, you know. 3D brought a, a whole movie to a dimension. Now they're coming back with it. Now you can go to see movies, and they're all 3D. You get the same goofy glasses, probably the same ones I had. But you get these goofy glasses, and it adds another whole dimension to the movie. See, the special glasses they gave you in this physical life took you from a two-dimensional movie and the movie comes alive through that third dimension being added. Now, in a biblical sense, looking at life through the Bible, principles of those 4D glasses through the Word of God, 
it'll give you the spiritual insight of God in depth in that fourth dimension. And that Bible comes alive. I mean, that Bible just comes alive. I mean, you hear me talk about being smarter than the problem all the time. You know what I really mean by that? Understanding the depth of the situation and the problem you're in. So many times a problem comes in when we wonder what the problem and our emotions get in the way and everything we got to deal with. And being smarter than a problem is seeing it as it really is. But that demands that you have a dimension on that problem that goes beyond the 3D physical. In the Bible, you find knowledge. In the Bible, you find wisdom and Proverbs. And you find understanding. Knowledge is facts. Wisdom is facts applied. But understanding is the fourth dimension of how God figures into it. And there's a worldly wisdom and there's a godly wisdom. And I've met a lot of people who were lost that had a lot of wisdom about a lot of things. They know how to fix this, break, fix that, do this, do make this, build this, that. But when it came to the most important question, their eternal life and where they were going to spend eternity and what all this really meant compared to a holy God dying on a cross in a lake of fire, they had no clue. No clue. You see, knowledge, that's one-dimensional. That's most Christians. Most Christians are just one-dimensional. You know about God. You know about the Bible. You know about church. You know about the basic fundamental things. You're one-dimensional. You're one-dimensional. Now, you give a Christian some wisdom, grow a little bit, get some wisdom. Now, you become second and third dimension, see? That's, that's some Christians. Not many, but that's some. Now you have wisdom to be able to use the knowledge that you have and you move into that second and third dimension. But understanding is the fourth dimension. Understanding is seeing any situation and seeing it not the way I look at it, not the way your friends look at it, not the way CNN or Fox News looks at it, but seeing it as God sees it. I used a great example many, many times, and it's a good one. Uh, we got new people here. I use the example of World War I and World War II. If you look at World War I and World War II from a first, second, and third dimension, it's simply the end of the great empires of Europe. Up to that point, you had the Austrian Empire, the Russian Empire, the British Empire, you had the uh, Hungarian Empire. All of Europe was broken up in these great monarchies. And it came to a crashing end. You had the Ottoman Turk Empire. And World War I brought an end to all that. World War I brought, brought that down. And I, how many times I've sitting and listened or a lecture or read books where the guy takes it through and he's got the facts, he's got history, he's got the facts, but it's only one and second and third dimensional. He never sees it for what it is because he's in the fields of the fatherless. He sees World War I and World War II just as nations piling on other nations. And he sees the end of the, of the, of the monarchies of Europe uh, bring about the, uh, the democracy of some of those countries, and that's all he sees. When you have understanding and you see it and you know the Bible and you understand what God is doing and you get into that fourth dimension, you see World War I got the land ready for the Jew. World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And in 1948, they became a nation. See, that's understanding. That's fourth dimensional stuff. That's looking beyond the fields of the fathers, what somebody tells you happened in history. But you see God doing in history and where he's going because you understand the greatest thing that God wants to do is establish his people back in that land. And he did. Right under the nose of Winston Churchill, right under the nose of Kaiser Wilhelm, right under the nose of Archduke Ferdinand, right under the nose of everybody out there that commentated on it because they didn't have the, they saw it from the physical side God's people need to step out of the natural and start living in the supernatural. 
You don't have to see life, your family, and everything you deal with from God's standpoint. But by the Bible, let's count one out of a thousand and five. Not very good odds. Then the last thing. The book of Proverbs will follow the same three applications that all the rest of the Bible follows. And you, you should know this if you've been around here any length of time. The book of Proverbs will have a historical application. The book of Proverbs will have a doctrinal application. And the book of Proverbs will have an inspirational application. Now, I want to give you what these are so you'll have it. You need to have this before we start here next week. Now, the book of Proverbs historically will be Solomon taking all of his wisdom, compiling it in his book to give to his son. You're going to find it, much of the first part of the book of, Sodom, uh, of uh, Proverbs is to his son. That son, historically, will be Rehoboam. Rehoboam takes over the kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 22. And Rehoboam gets all the wisdom that his father had. Rehoboam gets, gets all the wisdom to be a wise man. He sees the comparison between a wise man and a foolish man. He gets all of that. But he chooses to follow the path of a fool. He has all the wisdom of God that his father had. He, had, he saw the majesty. He had to see the nation after nation coming in. But yet, when he was faced with what made his father great, when it was his choosing and his choice, he chose to be a fool. He chose to forsake the wisdom of his father and become a fool. Now, you know what he does. He splits the kingdom. He lines up with Rehoboam, with one of, one of, his, one of his daddy's generals. Or, uh, excuse, Jeroboam was one of his daddy's, daddy's generals. And Jeroboam takes the ten northern tribes, and Rehoboam takes the two southern tribes, and it's the beginning of the demise of the fall of God's people. And 300 years later, 300 short years later, after, after his son forsook the wisdom of his father, that great nation that once all the nations came to, now the nations came to and took him into captivity. Life is choices. And the book of Proverbs in its doctrinal application. In this application, we see the son being the nation of Israel. God's son, Exodus chapter 4, in a, in a, in a national sense. And we see now, we see now him going through, uh, God through Solomon writes the wisdom, uh, this wisdom book to his people, Israel, showing them that they will have to make choices to be a wise son or a foolish son. And you'll find that this book is filled with stories of the evil man and the whorish woman or the strange women. Doctrinally, they all represent the Antichrist and, and his religious system. And, and, and God wrote this book because he knew that his people, the nation of Israel, were going to be faced with the same choices that Rehoboam had to make, and he wanted them to be wise. But again, but again, the nation of Israel follows the path of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And they as a nation, the nation of Israel, goes into total apostasy. All because they reject and refute, refuse to follow the principles of God's Word. A foolish nation run by foolish people who reject God and His Word. Then the book of Proverbs comes to us in an inspirational application. Sometimes called a practical application. Something for you and me in our everyday life. And it will be you and me as God's son, just as it was to Israel as a nation, just as it was to Solomon historically to his, his son. Now it's to me and you as God's son. Every one of you who have been born again, 
Every one of you who are God's child, every one of you that you claim to be God, be your father, and Christ be your savior. Where Rehoboam had to make choices, good and bad, historically, where Israel as a nation had to make choices, good and bad, doctrinally, you and I will have to make choices in life, good or bad, inspirationally. Those choices, when they're the right ones, will make your life fulfilled and complete and bring the blessings of your, in your family and everything God wants you to have. Those choices, when they are the wrong ones, will make your life a series of tragedies, trouble, nightmares, and will destroy you, your family, and everything that you try to touch. It's the difference between one who builds his house on a rock and one who builds his house on the sand. The book of Proverbs was written to us as God's child to give us everything we need to see and understand and use the wisdom of God. Knowledge that God has given to us to make the same choices to make the right choices in every area of our lives. It is with this intent that when we will prayerfully study and lay out this great book. Life is about choices. And this is great for you young kids here today. This is great. And I think when we, I think this is some of the greatest stuff that young people can hear, but moms and dads too. Life is about choices. The issues of life we have to face. The book of Proverbs gives us the ability to always make the right choice. You know, I, I don't spend a lot of time with it, but I, I try to learn from everything in life. I don't let my emotions get involved in many things. I've learned over the years that that's a choice that I don't want to make. But I, I, I watched this unfolding trial between George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. Now, what a tragedy that, that really is. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't get into it. Everybody likes to have their opinion. Everybody wants to get their emotions involved in it. I think that to a bad degree that there are people in this country who want to flame that into greater uh, the, for their own personal grain. I think that's a bad thing. At the end of the day, you know what? There's only two people know what really happened that day. And one of those is dead. I don't make any judgment values on it. Somebody asked me the other week what I thought about Trayvon Martin and, and George Zimmerman. My statement was to them was what I'll give to you. I think it's a tragedy. What do you think? What do you really think about it? Well, you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. I think if they'd both been in church that night, we never would have happened. I think if they'd been out passing out tracts and preaching the gospel, it never would have happened. It's my personal opinion on it. I don't make any value judgment on it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you one was right and one was wrong, or it doesn't matter. I, 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 don't, I don't learn from things that way. Let me tell you how I learned from it. And you young kids need to learn from it. Let me tell you something. The great lesson out of that life, for, out of that situation for me, is one of choices. George Zimmerman, when he called in to some suspicious guy, was told by the police dispatcher, stay in your car. Do not pursue that person. He made a conscious choice to disobey the authority that told him to stay in that car. And in that moment, he made that choice. He stepped out. We know how it ended. Trayvon Martin had four minutes, they say, to leave the scene and get away. In that four minutes, he chose not to. I'm not assigning any blame or right or wrong to either one of them. What I'm trying to get a point across you, one bad choice in your life can ruin your life forever. Right. One bad choice in a moment of time when you don't listen to the authority that just told you what to do can ruin your life forever. That's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not assigning who's right and who's wrong and who did what, who did that. I don't care. And nobody will ever know for sure. The only thing I do know for sure is this. Choices in life can destroy you when it's the wrong choice. 
I see Samson did the same thing. Samson had a mission of God. Samson was, was, a, was a Nazarite. A Nazarite was somebody that took a vow that he was going to accomplish something for God, in this case, to be the leader, the deliverer for Israel. But there were certain things that went along with being a Nazarite. Just like when you become a Christian, for you to fulfill God's plan, there are certain things you've got to have in your life. Samson couldn't cut his hair. Samson couldn't touch anything from a vine tree. Couldn't consume any grapes, grape juice, wine, none of that stuff. He couldn't touch a dead body. And here's a guy who all of his life <laughs> makes bad choices. I mean, my goodness, the first words out of his mouth when he shows up in the Bible, they say, I saw a woman, go get her. When it starts wrong, but I'll tell you the real thing. And I've watched this, and I try to apply these to my own life. And I've made my mistakes in life. God knows we all have. And, and, but the bottom line is, I look, at, I look at that, and I try to learn from it, just like the Zimmerman-Martin deal. I look at Samson. God told him, you can't have anything to do with grapes. And you know what got him? He touched a dead body. A lion came to him, and he fought that lion, and he killed it. And then later on, he got honey out of that dead lion. And when he touched that dead lion, he broke the vow of a Nazarite, and he went downhill from there. You ever see where he met that lion? Oh, Samson's going off to see his girlfriend. It must have been a long road because he knew a shortcut, and the shortcut was through the vineyard of Timran. And he cuts through that, sh that, that vineyard where he should never have been. He decides to make a constant choice. That's a long way to go. I'm going to take a shortcut. You know, shortcuts usually get you in problems. Just remember your last vacation. <laughs> remember when your husband said, oh, I know a shortcut, and you were on your way to Disney World, and you wound up in Vancouver. Remember how that went? <laughs> oh, Samson says, I know a shortcut. And he went through a place that he had never should have went through. He made a conscious choice to get off the track, would get him there safe, and he went through that vineyard. And guess where he met that lion? Where he shouldn't have been. When we make the wrong choices in life, I guarantee you, you'll meet the lion. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. You're the devil going about as a roaring lion, seeing who made a vow. Choices. Choices. Life is about choices. Proverbs is the book that shows us how to make the right choices. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. One bad choice can change your life forever. The book of Proverbs is the book about right choices, where the book of Job answers the great problems of life and suffering, evil, death, and the supernatural forces at work to bear on man's life. The book of Proverbs shows us how to be smarter than the problem. The book of Proverbs shows us, uh, states the cause uh, and the results and the value of good versus evil. It lays down the absolute standard for a wise man to make good choices based on the principles that are absolute and never change. It shows the fool who rejects the truth of God and by bad choices destroys his or her life. That's what the book of Proverbs does. I'm going to do my best to, to turn over every stone, to show you every principle. I'm going to try to work at this. It may take us 20 years to get through this book, but I want it to be the last time we have to go through it. But I want you to understand these things and what the book of Proverbs does for you. It'll define for you. 
very quickly if you're a wise man or a foolish man. It'll define for you very quickly if you're someone who wants to follow the principles of God or wants to do your own thing. It'll define for your life very quickly where you made good choices and where you made bad choices. And I don't care about the bad choices you made in life. I made bad choices in life. There isn't anybody here that hasn't made bad choices in life. I'm only interested from this point on you start making the right choices in life. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for today.